Welcome everyone to Fight for Your Rights. In today's episode, we will be discussing some of the fundamental rights around abortion. Specifically, we'll be addressing some of the pro-life and pro-choice arguments with the goal of changing or strengthening your stance. So one of the first things I want to address um, just before we get started is the marginalization of both sides. Now, a lot of people will try to filter this down to two main sides, right? You have the pro-lifers who believe it is a child that deserves the right to live versus the pro-choice side who believes it is the mother's right to facilitate her own body and that a pre-born is not considered a baby. Um, but before we start, I just want to address that point because a lot of pro-choicers will try to cut this down into a one-on-one -on -one argument. That is actually not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, typically speaking, most pro-lifers believe life begins at conception. Now, the reason why can range from biological reasons, meaning life begins at the conceptual makeup of unique genetic material, or perhaps the religious standpoint of when the soul enters the body. But fundamentally, pro-lifers believe life begins at conception. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, however, the pro-choice side, we actually have a dramatically diverse spectrum. So it's not just limited to one specific time frame. For example, you have the arguments from 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, uh, even up until birth. So really, it's not exactly a mono -e mono argument. Rather, it's actually pro-life versus 10 weeks, versus 12 weeks, versus 20 weeks, versus all of these ranging intervals in between. Um, but of course, there's a lot more diversity within the choice side than they're willing to admit. Now, according to Statista.org, about 49% of Americans affiliate as pro-choice in comparison to 47% of Americans who affiliate as pro-life, granting pro-choicers a majority population. Now, the only issue with this is that by pro-choice, they mean anyone who at any point supports getting an abortion, which, as explained previously, is a pretty vast spectrum. But when you put each individual pro-argument into context, the pro-life stance that life begins at birth is the largest popular alternative. But again, they try to filter it down to life at conception versus every other form of where life begins. Um, and often pro-choices will combine with diverging opinions because it does grant them majority support against the fight for life at conception, mainly because they believe that life at conception is more radical in comparison to their own beliefs. But see, the interesting thing is because it's easy for someone who say is a 12 week believer to say, I'm pro-abortion because I believe life doesn't begin as early as conception. And the viewpoint that life begins at conception is radical to them. Well, in that same context, let me ask, is life at conception is that argument more or less radical than the life after birth argument? Because if the whole point of lining up the pro-choice side to accommodate for every life-placing interval except for life at conception is to find common ground, then you're essentially saying life at conception is more radical than the belief in life after birth. Now, if you don't agree with that assumption, that essentially means that you've been placed into the pro-choice category and lined up with many other pro-choice arguments and that's the issue with creating a one-on-one -on -one environment when there is such a vast disagreement on the pro-choice side when life starts and when it should be aborted. Now, I just want to address some of the pro-choice arguments in relation to their distinct time frames. Now, the arguments that are most common among pro-choicers tend to line up somewhere near the end of the first trimester, uh, or in other words, around the 12 to 13 week time period. Now, typically when the subject of the matter pertains to a set time in the week, such as the 12 to 13 week uh, argument, they provide one of these three reasons for supporting that time frame. So the first is when they try to argue that they support, uh, for example, 12 weeks, because at that point, most abortion clinics and services deny performing the procedure. Now, the only issue with that reason is that it has literally nothing to do with whether or not you support an abortion. To state that your reason for supporting 12 weeks is based on the premise it is only offered for 12 weeks is to essentially make an assertion based on a secondary exterior force that can be changed based on where you 
and other people fundamentally stand on abortion. Now, the second reason they support intermedial timeframes mainly comes from estimations or rationalizations. In other words, they feel comfortable terminating a preborn early on because they consider it to be non-living. However, they feel uncomfortable taking a risk beyond that uh, assertion for fear of it becoming life. Now, 12 weeks might sound good, but again, what's the difference between 11 weeks or 13 weeks? The list goes on, and that's why it's a rationalization because they're willing to place a pretty life-changing action between the difference of a single time frame. And you know, this all comes back to the basic argument of when do you think a preborn becomes a human? If you know exactly when that life-changing development occurs, you need to be able to back that up. However, if your answer is, I don't know, or I don't know for sure, this is where we enter dangerous territory. Because ultimately, if you don't know when a preborn becomes living, wouldn't you err on the side of caution? Similar to the analogy that if you were driving down the road and you think you might have hit something, but you're not sure, wouldn't you pull over to check? Right? Again, it's a natural human reaction to err on the side of caution when it pertains to situations in which we lack a definitive answer. So again, if you don't know precisely when the preborn becomes a human, are you prepared to remove all caution from your answer? Because if not, this is where we have an issue. And this sort of leads into the third argument, which pertains specifically to the development of bodily functions and the varying arguments for what bodily qualities define life. Now, just like explained earlier, how there are varying degrees in when the time of an abortion should occur, there are varying degrees to which pro-choicers define life. Again, pro-life dictates life begins at conception. However, on the opposite side, pro-choice believes in a vast spectrum, such as life beginning at the development of brain or senses or conscientiousness or even separation from the mother. Now, the only issue with these stances is in most modern day life comparisons, they can be debunked due to parallels. For example, if your stance is in regards to brain development, Firstly, a brain is not fully developed until the age of 25, and secondly, to claim that at any point there is an absence of the brain development would be to disregard the fact that upon conception, cells begin forming into stem cells, into organs with specific functions. So really, brain development arguably starts at the beginning. Now, what about senses? The ability to feel, for example. I don't know how many times this argument has been addressed, but to claim the presence of senses dictates life would be to undermine every individual's right to life who has ever been in a coma. And a lot of times we'll see this argument paired with the, well, they can't tell the difference, they don't know what's happening. Again, does someone's lack of self-awareness allow for termination of life? Or does the ability to determine right or wrong dictate life? Because that undermines pretty much every little kid who has yet to learn right from wrong. Now, if your argument stems from separation between the mother or that the requirement of another human being to survive is no longer life, does this not disregard every individual who has ever been on a ventilator or used a wheelchair? And if your point is that the use of a ventilator or a wheelchair does not involve, involve human interaction, who do you think plugged in the ventilator? Who do you think helped them into the wheelchair? There are numerous examples of humans helping other humans for fundamental aspects of our survival. Fetal survival in the mother is nowhere near a different example. Similarly, people will try to make the case that perhaps... The fetus is not a baby, but rather it's a parasite, which is frankly just devoid of scientific evidence. Now, one important note about the parasite argument is that the circumstances are completely different. In the case of preborns, the mother, upon conception, sets a chain of emotions that eventually leads to uh, the baby's upcoming. Now, in the case of parasites, the presence of a parasite is not dictated by a behavioral change in the host. Rather, it is because of an exterior opportunistic case. But again, the claim a baby is a parasite is not only 
frankly, just a rather vulgar comparison, but it's not scientifically based. Okay, what about the establishment of relationships in the post-birth life? Well, arguably, you might hear that fetus establishes some form of relationship with its mother, uh, and this becomes especially present in how it responds to the environment the mother is in. But even if you wanted to argue that there is no relationship between the mother and that fetus, right? What about individuals who are antisocial or hermits? Because the fundamental characteristic of being an antisocial hermit is that you specifically go out of your way to avoid relationships. But again, if your case is that relationships equates to life, do individuals such as hermits or antisocials reserve the right to live? Okay, what about, and again, I'm going through all these different arguments because these are often life-defining characteristics as established by many pro-choice believers. So what about memories? Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with the relationship argument, because as we interact with the world around us, we create or reestablish relationships, we establish memories. But even then, in the case of individuals who suffer from memory loss or dementia, do they deserve a right to live? Okay, what about, for example, the heartbeat argument? Now, typically, this argument is not commonly used. Um, sometimes you'll hear it used mainly just because it's pretty early on and it occurs within the four to six week time period. But even in the case of heartbeats, right? What about individuals who have their heart stopped, right? You have individuals who have cases in which their heart stops beating and then uh, people need to perform shock procedures to essentially reawaken that heart. Again, if someone's heart stops immediately, do they then submit the right to live? Is that how this works? Or take, for example, people who have medical devices that allow their hearts to continue beating. Because they need those devices, do they forfeit their right to life? Because again, this is this is the argument that is being made. And this is why there are parallels that can be drawn in almost every argument from the quality of life uh, debate where pro-choice tries to place definitive markers on things that, again, are debunked in most cases. Now, if you still believe in any one of these beliefs, right, for sake of argument, Let's say, okay, yes, memories define life. Yes, brain development defines life. Or yes, separation from mother defines life. Now, the issue with any one of these stances is that no two individuals' development is the same. Some babies will develop at different rates than others. Furthermore, there is no definitive way to know when many of these so-called life-defining features take place. Again, even in the case of brain development, where are you going to place that marker? Because ultimately, brain development, sensory development, conscientious development, these are all things that are not only going to take life beyond birth to continue to develop, they're not going to be a one-time fits all situation, which again, you cannot place that life-changing definitive marker on a situation that varies per each individual. And again, you know, take the life at conception argument, for example. So this is an argument made not so much because people know it's life or non-living, but because they know that up until that point, there is no life. That's why so often the intermedial abortion arguments stem from assumption and the proconception arguments stem from caution. Uh, and then there's the counter argument to the notion that life begins at conception, which basically states that perhaps male sperm or female egg presence equates to life. Well, we know that's not true because one cannot be performed without the other, vice versa. And the function that is performed is the action of conception. Uh, similarly, you wouldn't call the engine a plane or the wings a plane. You call the entire thing the plane because at that point, you know the combination of all those important qualities once assembled is a plane and you have created something unique, which again goes back to the creation of unique genetic material argument. So ultimately, this comes from a biological mischaracterization. And that's why we know it's safe to assume life cannot be pursued up until post-conception because of that 
genetic material makeup, which historically speaking has been the biological definition of life. Okay. So what about the legal stance on abortion? What does the law say specifically in relation to unborns? So for starters, state laws exist specifically to address fetal homicide crimes against pregnant women in 38 states, some of which include California, Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Massachusetts, which notably have a large presence of pro-choice support. Um, now, what are fetal homicide crimes or what are fetal homicide laws? Essentially, in certain states, the killing of a woman bearing a child is considered double murder in the first degree. Now, the most absolutely fundamental quality to any law or legal matter is equality. Is the law equal? Does it contradict other laws or provide selective impacts? And most importantly, does it support the supreme law of the land, the Constitution, which in turn upholds the Declaration of Independence and the rights established in that founding document? So. What does that mean for the law? Essentially, by having this law in place, you protect babies' rights as American citizens. Again, regardless of whether or not you think a preborn, a fetus is alive or dead, it is legally recognized and protected in those states. Now, as I'm sure you know, the Declaration of Independence specifically grants Americans the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What do you consider to be the right to life? Because again, these laws are not a matter of non-living or living. They're a matter of American legal rights. If a law has determined preborns to be protected by American rights, should they not be protected in the event of their termination, murder, or abortion? Because look, you don't have to be a pro-choice or life side to recognize these laws are unequal against each other. You can either legally protect the baby in all cases or not offer legal protection in any case. What you cannot do is grant selective legal protections. Now, 38 states convict the killer of first-degree murder uh, but along with that, another eight states support penalty enhancing options to murder, essentially meaning that the conviction will be worsened to a degree more than just the typical murder sentence could grant, but it would not be held to the extremity of double murder, for example. So this is interesting. Now, if you haven't heard of the three-fifths compromise, clearly you haven't been in the education system in the past decade, but essentially this was a compromise made by the founding fathers. Uh, in which they tried to establish sort of agreements on what to do about slavery. One of them was to postpone slavery, um, the the importation of slavery for 20 years, for example, that was one of the outcomes of, of these compromises. But one of the other outcomes was the three-fifths compromise. Now, essentially, this compromise stated that slaves count as three-fifths of a per person, right? They get three-fifths representation. Now, it's pretty much unanimous with everyone that this was a pretty awful compromise. Um, and frankly, it violated human rights. And especially on the activist side, you see a lot of support against things like this, which were clearly racist, um, because it promotes only the partial representation of a person, which is interesting because you pair that with this argument, for example, penalty enhancing options, which are sort of a rationalization between them wanting to impose some sort of extra, extra fine along with the murder but they don't want to do it to the full extent of say double murder, because again, it comes down to them not wanting to count that baby as fully living, but partly living. Interesting how that works, considering that this was something we did in the three fifth compromise, which again is pretty much unanimous. It was wrong, but it breaks again at that partial legal representation with the law. Just an interesting thing to note, but collectively 46 states legally recognize fetuses to at least some degree, which is a pretty vast majority. And yet guess, how many states federally have legalized abortion? Of course, all 50. Again, a law must be equal and non-contradicting to be effective. We can either have fetuses protected or unprotected, but not somewhere in the middle. Again, this is just one of the effects of estimations and rationalizations. 
And again, you don't have to be pro-life or pro-choice to know these laws do not work. Now, in terms of other abortion laws, the one that I have excluded talking about up until now is the now famous Roe v. Wade case in which the Supreme Court essentially ruled that abortions were a federally protected right. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the specific law for a couple of reasons. One being that kind of like what we talked about earlier with the difference between primary and secondary issues, Roe v. Wade is sort of a secondary issue. And in that it doesn't really address being able to have an abortion as much as deciding who legally protects an abortion. And here's the thing. We can spend hours and hours talking about Roe v. Wade and the legalities of it. But in reality, I think talking about the abortion issue head on from a fundamental approach is probably going to be far more effective. I also think that with how much it's currently getting talked about, how much publicity um, it's gotten up until this time is a pretty fair amount of time spent talking about a secondary issue, which, you know, it's important, but at the same time, we should be talking about the primary issue. And another thing is um, a lot of people still don't quite understand what it's actually about. And that's what I really want to quickly address. Not so much like, um, you know, should it be here? Should it not be here? I just want to explain what it does, because that is the most flawed thing that people understand about it right now is what it actually does. Now, here's the thing. Anyone who tells you that Roe v. Wade will end abortion is wrong. I'm sorry, but that is not true. Roe v. Wade really isn't so much about abortion as people think it is, but it's more about federalism, right? Who gets to delegate the right? Is it going to be a federalistic power? Or is it going to be a separation of powers between states? Um, and the reason that Roe v. Wade is being challenged, again, assuming the leak in, is true and will hold firm in court, um, because many of the Supreme Justices argue it's not constitutionally addressed. And of course, this is only to the current time. I don't know what the after effect will be, um, whether or not this will get overturned, but I'm, I'm addressing it in the current circumstance of it. But the thing about federalism, as defined within the Tenth Amendment, is that rights not defined in the Constitution are not federally delegated. Rather, they're reserved for the states, for state governments, and populations of the state will vote on different leaders to elect different legislations, one being, say, abortion. Now, you might hear the right to abortion is reserved within the 14th Amendment. This is not true. Nowhere in the 14th Amendment does it provide the right to abortion, nor does it in any of the other amendments, especially when you consider that during the time of the 14th Amendment getting passed, abortion was banned in most of the states because they determined that the 14th Amendment actually protected against abortion. So we even have historical precedent. With this being the case, it is not constitutionally stated, right? It is not under federal jurisdiction to protect. Rather, it would be given to states to decide. Now, here's where it gets interesting. According to a lot of statistics and polling, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, 13 states would immediately move to ban abortion due to trigger laws, with a total of around 26 to 27 states banning abortion to at least some degree later on. Now, this is only about half of the states, right? Which means abortion will still be relatively legal in around 23 to 24 states to some degree. So again, going back to the claim that overturning Roe v. Wade will end abortion, it is not true. If Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion will still be a very present thing in many states. I can guarantee you that. So again, Roe v. Wade really comes down to giving states power to regulate rather than the federal government on issues not addressed within the Constitution. And I just like to add, too, it's a pretty dangerous road to go down when we start protecting rights federally that are not stated within the Constitution, because if you're going to argue that abortion 
is both defined and protected by the Constitution, you can then begin to spread out and collectively, you know, go after a bunch of other rights that are also not federally protected because they're not stated. But, you know, if we sort of get rid of that, that fine line of what is stated and what is protected, that is where we sort of seem to enter dangerous territory. Now, these laws are just one example of legal discrepancies in the support for abortion. For instance, one of the more common things that you'll notice in at least societal's treatment of men, men's rights versus women's rights, is in the aspect of child support. In other words, we as a society have deemed it acceptable for women to abort that child, essentially giving her the right to decide uh, upon conception whether or not she wants to take care of that child. However, what we have seen among men in this society is a distinct tie to their responsibilities upon taking care of a child at conception, especially with financial care. Now, the argument that is being made here has nothing to do with whether you support abortion or whether you think men should be tied to caring for that child. What it does have to do with this matter, however, is whether you apply the same standard equally. In other words, if you support a woman's right to abort a child and you support men's rights to withdraw their support for that child post-conception, that argument is equal. If you don't support abortion and you don't support men being able to walk away from caring at conception, that argument is equal. Where the argument becomes unequal is when you allow women the choice to decide if they want that child, but you don't grant that same right to men. Again, this is not a pro-life, pro-choice argument. It's about being equal and avoiding double standards. Now, if you support abortion, it might be easy to say that the man should have known what he was getting into and should have accepted the risk of a child, which is a valid argument. But all you're doing by saying that is creating the same argument for women. One thing we cannot do is act like that child belongs to one party more than the other. Even though a woman bears that child, that man has just as much responsibility for it as she does. And for that reason, we cannot subject one party to a standard differing from the other. And this is really one of the dangers with the argument that just because you're a man, you don't deserve to have an opinion on, say, abortion, since it pertains to an action committed for the mother, which is pretty ignorant considering that the preborn would not have come into existence without actions being committed by the father. And all you're doing by stating arguments like that is promoting the narrative that a woman has more right over that child than the father does, in turn creating societal normatives for men to then abandon that mother and that child because they falsely think it's not their problem, which is something that we cannot do. Again, we must allow equal representation and accountability of both sides. Now, how you want to apply that accountability comes down to how you want our society to function. That's up to you. But ultimately, it must be applied equally. Now, a lot of what we've been talking about stems from abortions after the fact, but what about uh, prevention? Now, this is something, regardless of what side you're on, must be recognized. So there have been many individuals that claim not only is birth control unavailable, but also ineffective. Now, these are two very specific arguments to claim. So let's start by addressing the assumption that birth control is not effective. Now, according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, approximately 51% of abortions resulted from failed contraceptive methods. Now, at first, that's a pretty scary number, making up just over half, and many assumptions about contraceptive ineffectiveness stem from statistics like these that seem to correlate abortions with ineffective contraceptives. Now, the issue with these types of statistics, however, is within the description of what counts as contraceptive methods. Now, according to the NHS, long-active, reversible contraceptive implants are more than 99% successful at preventing pregnancies. Contraceptive injections, when typically used, make up about a 94% effectiveness. That's also accounting for occasional incorrect usage in messages among individuals. The contraceptive pill or the birth control pill, through typical use, is 91% effective. But of course, when taken correctly, 
uh, it is 99% effective. So yes, contraceptive methods do work and are scientifically proven to work just within these few forms of contraceptive methods. And there are many, many more forms of contraceptive methods. Uh, and all those statistics take into account human error. You can view those statistics on the NHS website where it goes through each and every form of contraceptive methods effectiveness, which is also another point because a lot of people will try to say that medical conditions prohibit them uh, from using certain contraceptives. Well, again, the presence of numerous methods, both interior and exterior to the body are clear so much that for almost every medical condition, there is at least some form of contraceptive method that can cohesively work. Not to mention, there are also two people in a relationship. Both parties, both men and women, have contraceptive methods that they can take if the other one is incapable of doing so. But what is the main point that I'm trying to get at? Well, it's simple. If 51% of abortion patients reported using contraceptives and most contraceptive methods through typical use all range above the 90% effectiveness range, you cannot blame failure to use proper methods on failure of the method. Because ultimately that 51% all comes down to what you describe as contraceptive methods. If a woman takes a daily pill once a week, does that still count as a contraceptive method? Because again, the effectiveness of contraception is clear. And if you are one who does not believe that the statistics show contraceptives are clear and their effectiveness, you can view one of the many scientifically published articles advocating for high effectiveness rates among contraceptives. According to Cleveland Clinic, for example, the pill has the potential to be 99% effective at preventing pregnancy if you take it without fail, meaning you don't forget to take the pill for even a day or two. And you will see, you will see similar answers like this for pretty much every credible, credible contraceptive article on the web. But see, here's where it gets interesting, because typically there are two main arguments against contraceptive effectiveness. The first starts with the false assumption that it just doesn't work, that it's ineffective, which we've already addressed. But more often than not, that first argument will sort of blend into a second argument, which is essentially that contraceptives are not being effective uh, in terms of their usage, right? So they're, they're not exactly convenient um, in terms of their method taking. And these are two very different things to say that to say that for one, the contraceptive pill does not work. And then to say that the methods for using that pill are inconvenient are two very different things. However, we see the fallacy start when people begin to correlate usage of the method with the method's effectiveness. And that's where it sort of goes into this cascading fallacy uh, where you can't really get the, the bottom line truth. So if we're going to have a discussion about contraceptives, let's start with the basic fact that if used correctly, it works. Let, let's start on that and everything after we can build off of that. If you want to debate all day about how taking a daily pill to prevent conception is infinitely worse than having a baby, which may then have to be aborted, you can debate your heart's content away, but don't make the false assumption that the pill or many other various contraceptives don't work, which is an entirely debunked statement. And in terms of the 91, 94, 99% effectiveness, here's something that the choice side will repeatedly address. Essentially, they claim that these methods are not foolproof, which is true. They're not, and they're prone to failure. But does that grant the right to terminate fetus on the premise that birth control is not foolproof, or does it grant the right to not use birth control at all just because there's a slight chance of its failure? Take, for example, let's say the technology of our time was only capable of producing birth control with a 50% effectiveness. Wouldn't you still prefer to take it, given the alternative of terminating the baby, if you were not wanting to have a pregnancy? Because ultimately, birth control is a preventative strategy. And this is why really so much of the abortion discussion happens after the fact, when in reality, one of the best preventative discussions we can have is about contraceptive use. Because abortion procedures, adoptions, foster caring, pregnancy, fetal laws, all these things occur mainly in response to post-conception. And yes, 
there are different outcomes, but they're all of the same spawn. They all consist of after the fact matters. And this is the issue with promoting the notion that birth control doesn't work because then men and women are going to stop using it based on the falsity that it's ineffective. And this is the issue with promoting false information about one of the most preventative strategies of this debate is that it then opens up to further cascading problems that can all be addressed at the forefront. Almost always, all the time, the discussion about abortion is usually, okay, we have a baby. Can I, or can I not get rid of it? But in reality, the discussion should be, how can we talk about preventative strategies in the event that a man or woman is not in a capable spot to have such a pregnancy? So again, you, you see it so often we go to the, the post part of the problem and we just skip over the forefront of it. So we can talk about preventative strategies and that will in turn fix all the post problems that we have to face. And look, the, the response to all that is usually in terms of opposition is usually that you can talk all you want about contraceptive use, but ultimately there's going to be unintended pregnancies, even in the cases of perfect use. And yes, it would be ignorant to state that contraceptives are 100% effective, but it would also be equally ignorant to disproportionately represent an argument that stands on the grounds of say 1% ineffectiveness, because ultimately prevention is better than correction. And I know that some people will try to make this argument saying that, well, the fact that say around half of abortions occur from failed contraceptives makes sense since it's just the byproduct of all the 1% uh, birth control inefficiency cases, which logically is not necessarily invalid. However, what makes it invalid is to the scale of which abortions are occurring. Now, according to the CDC's average abortion cases, which is considerably lower than say other abortion statistics. There tends to be anywhere between six to 800,000 cases that occur each year uh, in the U.S., which means that according to the same people decrying the effectiveness of contraceptive use, roughly three to 400,000 abortions occur from failed contraceptives. So you can see where there's sort of a rift between statistically high rates of contraceptives effectiveness, along with people claiming contraceptive methods make up for a relatively high number of abortions. It doesn't add up. And again, the only logical place to put the medium between fact versus assumption is on the grounds of how we define contraceptive methods, because by not clearly defining contraceptive methods, we sort of create gray area to then count failure to properly use the method on the method's effectiveness when properly used. And I know I sound like a broken record, but it's because this is such a critical part of the abortion debate that constantly, constantly gets undermined and blatantly misrepresented. Now, in terms of the general availability. And this is the second part of the anti-contraception argument about birth control not being available. You cannot go to a local pharmacy without finding some form of birth control. Again, the notion that somehow birth control is unavailable or being withheld from individuals is simply not true. If the difference between birth control being available for you is a single car ride to your local pharmacy or store for that matter, then again, you cannot blame failure to use the proper method on the method itself. Sometimes you'll hear people talking about how individuals are unable to get hands on certain birth control because prescriptions or high prices, whatnot. Well, usually when you get a drug and it has a prescription, it's because that drug can have side effects, sometimes negative if used incorrectly, because believe it or not, taking some birth control pills can affect both your physical and mental health. But even then, not all birth control is prescription based. As discussed earlier, we are at a current time when technology has allowed us to have such a vast, abundant, and different variety of methods that birth control is relatively available in most places, especially in America, as long as you are looking for it. Even the assumption that birth control is high priced and thus unaffordable is not true. According to PlannedParenthood.org, which notably is not a pro-life outlet, birth control pills cost between 0 to $50 a month. 
They can be totally free with most health insurance plans or if you qualify for some government programs. For some forms of contraception, you can get a prescription for the birth control pill from a doctor or a nurse at a doctor's office, health clinic, or your local Planned Parenthood health center. In few states, you can even get prescriptions online or directly from a pharmacist. Again, that was directly from the Planned Parenthood website. So yes, contraception is available. There are many forms of it which allow for different medical or financial circumstance. But hey, don't take my word for it. Let, w w let's see what some of the statistics have shown in terms of their contraceptive usage. Well, for starters, according to the CDC, between the years of 2015 to 2017, approximately 65% of women aged 15 to 49 were currently using contraception. In other words, 46.9 million of the 72.2 million women were using contraception. In the United States, 99% of sexually experienced U.S. women aged 15 to 44 have used at least one contraceptive method as of 2008. Again, that's a 99% populace. Among all sexually active women not seeking pregnancy, 93% of unmarried women who lived with a partner used contraceptives, as did 90% of married women and 83% of unmarried women who did not live with a partner. Among sexually active women not seeking pregnancy, 81% of those with no insurance coverage, no insurance coverage, important point there, use contraceptives, as did 80% of those covered by Medicaid and 90% of those covered by private health insurance. So we can see how these, how those without insurance still have a relatively high rate of contraceptive use, which is something that, you know, the pro-choice side will continually uh, berate is that only people with insurance can afford birth control. That's just not true. All in all, contraceptive use is available and they do work if properly used. It all comes down to personal decision-making. Now, here's the thing, whether or not you think an abortion is a woman's right, pretty much everyone can agree that getting abortion isn't exactly a desirable procedure. Even if you think there is nothing wrong with terminating the fetus, the surgery still requires injections, still requires the use of medical tools, and isn't exactly all sunshine and flowers as the media and some pro-choice advocates portray it to be. For example, a study done by Live Action got 208 individuals who identified as pro-choice to watch all or most of the abortion procedure video. After watching the video, of the 208 pro-choice women, while 62% of the women's views on abortion remain unchanged, 70, again, that's 70 of the 208 women, viewed it as less favorable. Again, these are, these are advocates, pro-choice advocates. These are not individuals who are, who are down the middle. These are not pro-life. These are pro-choice advocates who have had their minds changed. Now, the argument that I'm making here is that I'm not trying to villainize abortion. I'm simply asking for at least a little more discretion on its treatment. Because the least we could do is make abortion the extreme rather than the norm. Because by portraying it to be a beautiful process overflowing with self-right to choice, we perpetuate a theme, especially seen in the media, that overglorifies it, which can lead to inv individuals making decisions that they don't fully know the effects of. For example, let's just look at some of the physical um, health effects. And I'm not even talking about terminating the preborn. I'm talking about negative health effects that women face in abortion procedures. Now, according to PlannedParenthood.org, some possible health defects from abortion are that the abortion doesn't work and turn the pregnancy does not end. Some of the pregnancy tissue is left in the uterus, blood clots in the uterus, very heavy bleeding, infection, injury to cervix. Um, and here's the thing. I don't want to promote the theme that getting an abortion surgery means you will have any one of these defects for certain because negative health effects or negative health impacts of abortion are rare. But this is also the case with any surgery you undergo. There are possible risks that you have to take, but these risks are not just physical, 
there are also a lot of negative mental health impacts that can be had from abortion. Now, according to the National Library of Medicine, both sides, again, they're referencing pro-life and pro-choice here, agree that abortion is consistently associated with elevated rates of mental illness compared to women without a history of abortion. Now, the interesting thing about this statistic is everyone agrees that negative mental health can be commonly associated with abortion. However, the reasons why vary. For example, the pro-life side will tell you that abortion cause the mental sickness like depression or guilt. And the pro-choice side will tell you that these mental health conditions existed prior to the abortion, which may in turn have led to the abortion procedure itself. Now, what I find to be interesting about these two arguments is that both of them are negative impacts. Like it doesn't matter which argument you believe because both are not good things. Because either abortions are causing vast amounts of negative health impacts like depression, like anxiety, like guilt, or people are, who are affected by mental illnesses are looking to abortion as an outlet for those problems. So one way or another, the bottom line is, hey, maybe we need to address the portrayal of abortion procedures and possibly put more focus on who is getting them. So really, both arguments are effective in addressing the usage of abortion procedures. But again, the point that I'm trying to get at is maybe let's not give people the false image that may lead them to do things without their full knowledge. And this is why, if you have not researched or watched the various methods for abortion procedures, I urge you to do so because these are tactics that are being employed currently. Again, I don't care if you're pro-life, pro-choice, but I think it should be a bipartisan issue that wherever you stand, we address the situation as it is and not over-glorify it. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about adoption and foster caring. Now, these alternatives are often criticized in the context of pro-abortion advocates um, now abortions, or excuse me, adoptions and foster caring is far from a perfect option. I want to be clear. It is far from a perfect option because here's the thing about unwanted pregnancy is they are pretty much a lose-lose situation every time, because either you're going to have to force that woman to carry the baby to term, or you're going to have to terminate the baby. And that's why prevention is so crucial. Now, the topic about adoption and foster caring options isn't really about whether or not they're perfect, though. It's about whether or not they are better than the alternative. Now, there are really two main points to address here in criticism of adoption and foster care alternatives. Firstly, if you are coming from the standpoint that abortion is acceptable, you kind of lose ground to criticize the other alternatives. It's kind of like if China were to criticize freedom in the U.S., it's like, well, yeah, obviously, when you come from a place that has little to no freedom, you sort of lose ground to criticize our freedom. And it's sort of the same thing for, say, contraceptive effectiveness arguments. When people claim, well, birth control is faulty, it only has a 94% effectiveness, it's like, okay, I'd probably rather take my chances with a 6% ineffectiveness versus a 100% chance of fetal termination. Now, the second point about whether foster care or adoption should be an alternative comes down to the assertion that Foster kids and adopted kids are more likely to be put in abusive situations and are more likely to engage in harmful activities such as drug use. Therefore, their fetuses should be aborted to prevent the provocation of such events. Now, this is an entering really dangerous territory because we have now crossed the ideological threshold of consequence without freedom. What do I mean by that? Essentially, it comes down to the fact that you cannot make judgment decisions on individuals' freedoms based on stereotypes that are possible to occur. Furthermore, by arguing that it's okay to terminate preborns on the premise that they are likely to be, say, homeless or drug abusers or in poverty, you're essentially denying that right of life to those in poverty who abuse drugs or who are homeless. But of course, the defense to that is, 
well, no, it's in their best interest, right? It comes down to a sort of twisted virtue of protection from unfortunate circumstance. Like, there are a lot of abortion arguments out there, and I mean a lot. Some are better than others, but this is probably about the worst one that you could present. Again, this notion, if you really break it down directly, kicks down the door of free agency. Should you prevent someone from freedom because of the negative consequences of their choice that may or may not occur? That is what this is. And also, if your argument is that unwanted pregnancies are more likely to lead to kids, to lead kids into negative outlets like abusive parents, like poverty, or like homelessness, what about the ones that didn't end up like that? What about the individuals who went on to live a full positive life? Because by promoting this pro-abortive narrative, you are not only ending the lives of those who will face difficulties, you're ending the lives of every child's existence regardless of the possible outcomes of their life. And, and look, if you want to talk about actually fixing this problem, right, we can talk about preventing unwanted pregnancies so that kids don't have to go through hard lives in the first place. But again, they want you to focus on the outcome of the problem, not the cause. This is why when people advocate for alternatives such as foster care and adoption, it's not because they want kids to grow up in those circumstances. Not to say that all adoptions or foster care are bad, but it's because this is what happens when a conscious decision has been made not to take preventative measures. Like, I am all for trying to lessen the amount of adoptions or foster caring or even orphans that can be made out of unwanted children, but the only way to solve this issue rests with prevention. Now, we've talked a lot about criticism of alternative options like abortion, but what about alternative circumstance to abortion? Now, what do I mean by that? I'm talking about the 1% case. Now, if you don't know what that is, it pertains to 1% of abortions being a result of rape or forced pregnancy. And if we include cases of, say, incest, which often gets kind of grouped together in this category, the number goes up to about 1.5%. So here's the thing about this. A lot of times, the pro-choice side will criticize the pro-life side on this issue, sometimes with the goal of focusing on the little issue and making it big. But, and here's the big but, it is a valid point. Now, a lot of times, pro-life individuals will say, well, this is a 1% issue, it's a minority issue, and it's not an important issue as the other 99% of cases. Um, and because of that, we can sort of agree on a generalistic approach, which arguably is fair. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, factually, it is a very minute issue in the grand scheme of things, but where it matters for the pro-life side is how you apply your logical reasoning for the best outcome in that 1% issue, as well as the rest of the 99%. And this is where we begin to sort of see a division in the pro-life side, not in regards to what defines life or a baby, but rather what defines exceptions for life. Now, it's pretty much unanimous on the choice side that abortions and forced pregnancies should be allowed. But again, we do see more of a split on the other side. Um, the Alabama abortion law, for example, if, if you remember, that was fairly controversial among pro-life individuals, mainly because it forced pregnancies in all cases, except, say, health issues or miscarriages, things like that. Now, I'm not going to necessarily argue whether or not it should be allowed in these circumstances, but what I am going to argue is that your logic adds up with how you address the other 99% cases. In other words, I think that the principles you have for 99% of the cases should not change regardless of how small and specific a certain circumstance can be. And here's the thing about this specific case is we could spend all day talking about how to deal with pregnancy after the fact, but ultimately, just like using contraceptive, just like adoption and foster caring alternatives, the best method lies within prevention. Now, in the prevention of forced pregnancies, we could talk more about harsher penalties, more accountability, 
um, for for aggressors who commit these acts, but ultimately that lies within lawmakers' abilities to prescribe such legal actions. And that includes encouraging more victims to come forward uh, for aggressors' prosecutions. Now, here's the issue with talking about the extremes of cases, right? For example, the pro-life or excuse me, pro-choice side will continually focus many of their arguments on the extremes of cases like rape, rape or incest or um, the low chance of failure in contraceptive use leading to unintended pregnancies or like single mother um, working her hardest to support her family story, which always gets brought up. Um, and you'll hear these arguments often represented um, within the need for abortion, when in reality, most abortions do not occur in these types of extreme circumstances. And again, while circumstances like that do happen, they do not represent a bulk of the cases. Even the pro-life side will do it. The reality is that most abortions will occur earlier on rather than at or post-birth, um, such as fantasy. Not to say that these instances don't occur because they certainly do and there are laws that protect these actions. However, the majority of abortion cases tend to be earlier on. But a lot of times pro-lifers will jump straight into those instances because they are arguably the most radical in appearance. Now, here's the thing when talking about extremes. The bottom line, right, the meat of this point that I'm trying to get at is basically to say that they are important to address, but your entire argument should not rest on them. I think we can all agree on that, right? Your argument should not be built around around abnormality. It should be built around normality. And this is why it worries me when I hear all of these arguments being formulated, not around normalities, but extremities of issues. Typically, there's two big reasons why people will continually perpetuate these radical circumstances. The first possible reason is because they lack a strong argument. Therefore, they have to resort to, say, extremes of cases to find support uh, for their argument where they can also gain further emotional absolutism for others um, from others. And if you don't know what emotional absolutism is, essentially, it's the process of excluding self-rational thought for societally unchangeable solutions labeled morally right or wrong. And the second is because of political marginalization. They want you to deny their extremes so that you can appear as more extreme. It's a polarization tactic, simple as that, because ultimately it comes down to the fallacy that having an opinion on an extreme case makes you an extreme person with an extreme argument. And that's really where this whole debate begins to break down along with any chance of compromise. All right, now the last thing that I wanna focus on is more the grand scheme of this debate. And I really hesitate to make this one belief versus another belief. And I really hate to make this a conservative versus liberal debate, uh, mainly because as we discussed earlier, there are just so many varying degrees to these arguments that you cannot really subject it to two independent beliefs. And yes, conservatives tend to disapprove of abortions and liberals tend to favor abortions in different degrees, but there are exceptions like libertarians, for example. Um, but really the greater reason I hate to make this a two-sided debate is because of political marginalization. Now, my own personal belief is that there are two major threats to our democratic freedom. Now, the first is a lack of involvement or just the general uninformed population, which we'll get to in a minute here. And the other is political marginalization. Now, if you don't know what political marginalization is, essentially it's when individuals take certain elements of what you believe in, regardless of how minute those specific elements are. And then they polarize you to the radical spectrum of a side. They marginalize you to a specific political instance. One example is uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, right? Where if if you disagree with Black Lives Matter or if you say statements such as all lives matter, you are a white supremacist, you are racist, and you know, you're part of the discrimination. But it's like, no, there's a difference between 
the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Lives Matter statement, but where it becomes dangerous is when you try to blend the two. And this is one of the many tactics of political marginalization, essentially saying if you disagree with BLM, with the BLM movement, then you don't care about black lives. And, you know, it's like the same thing if, if I say, do you support MAGA or the Make, Make America Great Again movement? If your answer is no, I could just as easily call you un-American anti-patriotic. It's like, no, just because you don't support Donald Trump's movement to make America great again doesn't make you un-American. It just means you don't think he's the best guy to carry it out. And, you know, why am I sitting with the with this topic, you know, talking about this and how does this correlate to the abortion lecture? But in realization, it's because I think it's most prevalent in the pro-life, pro-choice debate, right? We've already seen attempts from both sides to marginalize the other, you know, on the pro-choice side, they'll try to label pro-life as anti-choice in an attempt to further polarize their opposition. You know, they'll say things like pro-lifers are anti-women's rights, anti-feminists. Um, and even on the pro-life side, you have people calling them the other side murders or genocide supporters. It's like, look, you want to know the first step to losing an argument? Calling the other side a bunch of murders or anti-feminists. And you know, Look, people will say, oh, well, I really do believe they're killing babies or I really think they just hate women. It's like, look, if you have those beliefs, that's fine. That is your belief. And maybe it's your goal to convince the other side of that. But do it in a way that seeks to compromise, not further divide. You can express your concerns regardless of how serious they are in a respectful and constructive manner. Because the thing that people don't realize is that this is really a really high stake debate. And it's probably one of the most important issues facing our country right now, because we are either, think about it, we are either committing murder or committing an invasion of rights. And both of those things are probably about the worst outcomes in human life, which is why we can't let this argument die. And we need to work together. We need to come together to resolve it and avoid a dangerous pitfall, such as political marginalization. And that sort of leads into the second danger, which is lack of involvement. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's pretty much become acceptable in today's society that politics are bad, politics are depressing, therefore I'm just not gonna talk about them. Now, that is an extremely sad, dangerous, and downright un-American outcome to have, because here's the thing, our country, our constitution, was set up based on the premise that people would be involved in what's going on so they could make informed and well thought out impacts and decisions. You know, people will talk all the time, what's the, what's the greatest threat to our country? And they'll say, oh, it's, you know, the radical left or the radical right. It's like, no, actually that's not the case at all. You see, most America, most of Americans prefer to sit in the center left to center right spectrum. That's why the far right and far left are called radicals, because in comparison, they hold unpopular progressions of those center stances. Now, you want to know how to keep the radical left and the radical right in check? You have an involved center right, involved center left to keep them in check. But when you take the involved center out of the equation, all you have left are radicals. And America was built on a majority system to keep the minorities in check. But now so many people care only enough to read headlines from the radicals, in turn radicalizing them, or others will choose to just not get involved at all and pretty much surrender their right to have an opinion as an American. But the greatest threat to our democracy are uninvolved individuals. And political marginalization is just an outcome of that lack of involvement. And, you know, in terms of, you know, politics being bad, it's pretty ignorant to blame politics as the reason we can't talk about issues today, because politics is the ability to discuss and debate altering ideas with the goal of compromising on a better solution. And people will constantly, constantly try to act like they can avoid politics. You know what? Politics pretty much runs about every aspect of our lives. 
you know, do you have kids that, that go to school? Okay. So education, you're involved in politics. You know, do you go to the store? Do you buy food? Do you get gas? Okay. You're involved in politics. You know, it's just about every aspect of our lives is controlled about politics. And, and, you know, being able to talk about that is one of the, the great works really to having a successful society is that we can function effective, effectively, and we can talk about issues together to achieve the greatest outcome. And that's really the whole point of being able to discuss, say, politics. Um, so really, don't blame politics for your inability to respectfully discuss and progress issues of the current day, because the moment we pretty much fail to stop talking about politics, we, we neutralize any chance of finding compromise, which is, which is basically what we're seeing today, where people are just afraid to express their opinion out of fear of offending someone, because we live in a society that is labeled varying beliefs and offending someone as unanimous. And here's the thing. If someone legitimately feels offended by something you have said, they should be able to provide a defense for why it's offensive, because either you said something that is unoffensive and through their defense, they can better see their own lack of reasoning. Or if they provide a good defense, then you might be able to change or alter what you said with the goal of finding common ground. And a lot of people will try and say, oh, well, there's just some things it's, it's obvious, right? That they're just so bad. You shouldn't say it. It's like, yeah, but the only issue with saying that is now you create gray area for people to go anywhere in between and to say anything that they want. And, and then at that point, anyone can be offended at anything. And that's pretty much a spawn of gray area, which is why we have to provide boundaries. We have to be able to test those boundaries. And we test those things by talking about those things. So ultimately the whole system doesn't work if we fail to talk about politics. That's, that's just how it is. And we can't get around that fact. But again, it's, it's a broken system with failure landing, not on politics, but on our own social societal norms and fears. Um, but for politics to work again, we need to be involved. We need to discuss issues like abortion, like gender, like rights without politically marginalizing others and focusing only on the goal of constructive thinking. At the beginning of this episode, I said my goal was to discuss important topics with the goal of changing or strengthening your stance. Many people will often view leaving a debate with unchanged opinions on both sides as failure or pointless, which is not true because even if someone remains unchanged in their beliefs, you help them strengthen their argument and perhaps define important points that they need to address in their argument or lack of argument thereof. And the same can go for you as well. So as I come to an end in this first episode, I urge you to consider these things as you go throughout your daily life. Begin to discuss these topics again. Be open to changing your mind one way or another, because as we begin to rebuild these basic elements to democracy, we will ensure freedom and our rights to free agency. Thank you for listening in this first episode. If you like it, be sure to check out the next one where we discuss the Second Amendment and our right to bear arms. This has been the Fight for Your Rights podcast.